Welcome everyone. I'm talking at the 35th in a series of podcasts produced by the British Society of Haematology. This podcast will be covering an update and where we're at on the guideline called the Haematological Management of Major Hemorrhage. Before I get any further, I would just like to add that this podcast is being recorded over Zoom and you may notice, and apologise for this, but you may notice sometimes the sound quality that varies. By way of introduction, I am Simon Stanworth. I'm a professor of haematology and transfusion medicine in Oxford uh, with a joint job between the between NHSBT, Oxford University Hospitals Trust and the University of Oxford. I'd first of all now like to do, introduce my colleague here as we're going to have a conversational podcast here to discuss this guideline. So I'm now going to hand over to Heidi. Welcome, Heidi. Hi, Simon. It's great to be here. I'm also a haematologist with an interest in transfusion. Um, I've worked for the blood service, also for hospitals. But I suppose the thing that's slightly different is I've done quite a lot of time with the military and also um, work overseas. So I've got an interest in sort of resource constrained environments. One of the things I'd first like to pick up um, is this guideline and how practice has changed so much over the last 20 years. I remember when I started thinking about the management of these patients with major hemorrhage, we often had an approach where we'd start by giving some crystalloids to these patients. Then we might wait for a haemoglobin measurement and think about red cell transfusions. Then we might do a coagulation screen, but it was a very, I think quite slow now looking back on it and quite responsive approach to transfusion. And yet now we've almost changed that whole pathway round. And certainly, for example, we're not advocating the use of crystalloids more. But that's something I've noticed. But Heidi, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts on that, whether you've seen that dramatic change. I think it's changed beyond recognition. Uh, it's quite interesting because, you know, I, I was first doing practice in this area in about 2003. Uh, so, as you say, 20 years ago. And there was this real tension between the labs and the clinical staff. My giddy aunts, you know, they used to be fighting, didn't they? Do you remember having to persuade hematologists to give platelets, plasma, etc.? But I think the way that we moved to blood-based resuscitation in about 2005, uh, but actually the first significant guidelines weren't until, what, 2015? It, it's... In some ways, it's been really rapid change, but in other ways, it's also been quite careful, considered, and I think looking at the evidence. And I think in the early days, perhaps our practice was, you know, racing ahead of the evidence. I think this is why the work that you do, you know, looking at the evidence base for our practice is just so important. And I think... Um, you know, one of the things that you quite often mention is the evidence around TXA, you know, tranexamic acid. We all talk about the CRASH-2 trial, but then there's this other work that's come on. And I know you're going to talk a little bit about that. So I think what I really like about the change in practice is the way that it's brought lab and clinical areas together. You know, I, I think the labs are much more like partners in the whole process and that's got to be good for patients. 
Actually, Heidi, just having listened to you on that, that brings back some memories of some of the clinical studies that you and I have been involved with. But I can in particular think of uh, how that has changed over the years. So there was a time when when we were doing setup visits, site setup visits for these trials. And actually, we were trying to organise the laboratory team to meet at the same time as the emergency department team. And I do remember one or two of these visits where we would have these meetings and actually no one had met each other before face to face. And I can even remember one of these sites where we had all the laboratory staff sitting at one end of a long table and all the clinical staff <laughs> sitting at the other end of a table. But actually by bringing these groups of people together, by bringing these healthcare professionals together, it must be of benefit um, for the patients and must help in the organisational aspects. You know, if thinking about these guidelines, thinking about laboratory aspects, are there any are there any bits here that you would choose to emphasise in this guideline um, that you think, you know, a reader might want to go away and think about their own practice in their own hospital for? Yeah, I mean, you know, the early part of the guideline, uh, you're giving the evidence for all the different components. And that takes quite a bit of orchestration. And I think the whole guideline is about emphasising the the organisational bits and pieces. And so we need good plans. We need policies, not just for patient care, but I'm afraid, you know, transfusion safety, regulatory compliance. So the coordination piece is around, you know, having a major hemorrhage protocol. And that is like our key transfusion algorithm it describes the process you know the people and the products required uh, and bringing it all together so I think it starts with um, you've just got to know your own setup you've got to know where to find how to get emergency blood how to get you know things like prothrombin complex concentrates um, I think you need to know where the lab is and you know who the lab people are um, and the, quite a lot of the online details and sort of the top tips are in the supplement and the supplements on the um, BSH site. It's a really good site because it's not just this guideline. Come on, there's all the other guidelines as well. I mean, this is just about the hematological management and you, I know you signpost us to a couple of others. So I think, you know, get online, look at the supplement. And a lot of those top tips, you know, they're underpinned by sort of human factors research. And if we give an example, it's around communication. Now you've started with communication starts with actually knowing the people. But I think there's quite a lot to be said for having um, like a, a tool to structure information during an emergency. And, you know, that's something that we've taken away from the emergency um, medical services. And Practice is developing. Uh, we're taking stuff from so many different disciplines, but we've got to keep an eye on all the new data that's coming out. And that's why education, audit, research are so important. That's really helpful. And in fact, I'm glad that we've started this podcast thinking about this whole section of the organisation audit education but what it's maybe ought to just go back and think a little bit about the structure of this guideline so we obviously were very keen to have a role that was covering these sections that we've just been discussing and that was one of the reasons why we wanted a very kind of multidisciplinary team 
underlying this guidelines. It's not just about clinicians. We also included um, a number of um, staff from the laboratory services, the transfusion services. And that does remind me, of course, to mention, I would like to acknowledge all the time and input that these colleagues provided to support this guideline to make it happen. But we also thought about the structure of the guideline and maybe we'll just go on and talk a little bit about one or two of the other sections. So it's worth thinking a little bit about why we did this guideline. I think we've emphasised how practice has changed um, so much over the years. But one of the other reasons why we did this guideline to, as a follow up to the previous one, has there's been really a marked expansion, and in fact, I'd almost call it an explosion of literature that's relevant to this whole area of the hematological management of major hemorrhage. And we're not just talking now about studies of practice, epidemiology, epidemiological studies. We're also talking about an increasing number of randomised control trials. And I think that's a testament to many of our colleagues in hospital practice who are willing now to work with us to think about how can we improve the practice of these patients with major hemorrhage? How important is it to use a component of blood? How important is it to use tranexamic acid? And it's that partnership again between the patients, between the laboratory side, between pharmacy and the clinicians that has really helped us advance some of the, the recommendations that we were able to make in this guideline. I think in this guideline, there was another area that we wanted to, to cover, which reflects increasing interest in pre-hospital care. So largely, we've been talking about the hospital management of patients with major hemorrhage. But of course, as we all know, the, the, the injury, for example, if we're talking about trauma, will happen before an individual gets to hospital. So there's increasing interest in how we can move forward earlier with different types of therapy. Now, one of those that's been highlighted by very strong level evidence, and we talk about in the guidelines, is tranexamic acid. And there is a real need to ensure that in the setting of trauma, these patients are offered and given tranexamic acid as needed. But we're also beginning to explore how best to use blood components and in particular whether, for example, plasma transfusions might be beneficial to patients earlier. And so in this guideline, we also wanted to think a little bit more and to provide some early guidance on pre-hospital support. Heidi, I know you've been involved with some pre-hospital studies. Um, is there anything that would, you'd like to mention to us about where you think the pre-hospital direction of travel is going for the use of blood components? Um, yes, yeah, Simon. Yeah, thanks for that. I think the guidelines recognise the move towards pre-hospital management as well as support to major incidents. And I think in this sort of situation, it's it's emphasising the need for simplification of the process. And I think it's also driven some changes in component development. And so we see a move towards whole blood. We see a move towards dried plasma. I think sometimes people forget it's all very good having the hematological management of major hemorrhage, but it's got to start with hemorrhage control. And so I think the whole thing about the pre-hospital piece is 
reminding people about patient blood management. And, you know, we can get lost down all this, you know, weird use of components, but we've got to get back to basics. We've got to stop the bleeding whilst we're resuscitating these patients. And the resource-constrained environment really highlights the need, not just for the rational use of blood, but also hemorrhage control. Interesting there. You use the word simplification, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Simple things will work well in practice, and simple things will work in a setting of an emergency. So I think we're all very agreed on that. But maybe one of the, the points that I took out and we discussed in our in this guideline was the, the evidence is beginning to say to us that not all patients can be managed in the same way. In a hospital setting, in the emergency department, we will see many different causes of major hemorrhage. We'll see trauma, but also not infrequently, we may see cases of gastrointestinal bleeding. We may see obstetric bleeding, although often that goes more directly um, to, the, to, to the woman's hospital. Um, and we'll also see complications related to bleeding and surgery, which may um, come to the emergency department. We've got these different causes of hemorrhage now. But the data, the evidence is beginning to tell us that perhaps a one size doesn't fit all for a massive hemorrhage protocol. There may be important differences that we need to think about by these different causes, by these different clinical settings of bleeding. So as a couple of examples, and I want to emphasize again how the data on tranexamic acid has really been at the highest level of evidence. We can make stronger recommendations. But whilst there is clear data that tranexamic acid has a role in trauma and in obstetric bleeding, the large clinical trial that was done in gastrointestinal bleeding didn't find a benefit to reduce bleeding and re-bleeding. And there may actually also have been a signal of some increased thrombotic events. So here we've got an example where a treatment that works in one setting of major bleeding may not work in another setting. Now, I think as we all recognise the, the quality of the data overall for blood transfusion isn't quite as clear as it is for tranexamic acid. But there are some areas where, again, there might be differences that we need to figure into our massive hemorrhage protocol by the cause of bleeding. So, for example, in the context of obstetric bleeding, we know that fibrinogen levels increase during pregnancy. So there might be a, a different approach that we want to look at when we're thinking about fibrinogen supplementation. So I guess a question, Heidi, and I don't know how we in the transfusion service are going to think about this, but I'm guessing that most hospitals will have a single massive hemorrhage protocol. And how are we going to modify this or adapt this particularly as more data comes out in the future, how might we kind of work this into a practice where we've always got this contrast, this balance between simpler is better, but it might not actually be what we want to do for the patient perspective. And I don't know the answer, but I would be welcome any thoughts from you, Heidi. 
I, I think it's a constant theme in medicine, isn't it? How do we both simplify and tailor care for the patient? And I think um, during the emergency, we actually need to have things as simple as possible, and then we refine it um, subsequently. And we, we did actually have um, sort of a clinical commentary against this guideline, didn't we? Um, which was very useful having somebody else's perspective on the guideline. And I think they, they pointed out that actually, you know, there's a lot of recommendations here and there was a need for simplification. So are you happy with um, perhaps if I just look at some of the areas of controversy? Please do. I think that's a really important point that, you know, we put a guideline out, but we also want feedback on the guideline. And there may be areas that we want to think about to improve later. So and in the full spirit of transparency for the listener, we, I, Heidi, please tell us you know, one or two thoughts from the commentary. Well, I think what I really like, I mean, these are incredibly experienced clinicians involved with the laboratory as well as with resource. And they start with the fact that actually major hemorrhage protocols are resource intensive. Overactivation will lead to staff stress and wastage. And, you know, from my perspective, wastage is a really big thing. And they really welcome the personalization of care bit, but they they pick out a couple of things to sort of comment on. So they point out that hemoglobin targets are quite conservative, particularly during the bleeding phase. So whilst you've got a hemodynamically unstable patient, they think you need a little bit more of a safety buffer. And they're suggesting perhaps a hemoglobin range of about 80 to 120, which is, I suppose, a little bit like some of the um, original guidelines where you have this really simple figure of 100 grams per litre for the hemoglobin. And I think it highlights the problem with lab monitoring in what is actually a clinical emergency. So normally we use physiology to guide fluid replacement in the critically ill. And they point out that if you're trying to do lab monitoring at, I don't know, intervals of 30 to 60 minutes, um, <laughs> it's probably not feasible. And is it actually relevant? That's a really good point, actually. And then... Um, We've been talking about tranexamic acid. And of course, the, the trials giving that really high level of evidence is based on the bolus to begin with, followed by the infusion. Well, certainly in the resource constrained environments, in major incidents, you don't want to be faffing around with like an eight hour infusion. But that's actually where the evidence is. So I don't know, there's a little bit of a tension between perfect practice and the pragmatism of real day life. And then, um, I mean, finally, the target INR of 1.5, you know, you might as well, you, know, you could laugh at that. But of course, that's what the trials are based on. So, you know, they make some really, really good points. They put in a really nice informatic and it's, you know, so it's one way of really distilling all of this expanding knowledge into a single sheet of A4. And I thought that was a really nice touch. And I, I just wondered about, you know, these guidelines take quite a lot of time to prepare. And given the fact that so much is changing, what, what do you think our plans are to sort of update and communicate? Idea, I think you've raised, you know, the issue about what next um, and updating guidelines. 
I think, like you, we're all recognising that the literature is changing quite dramatically and will continue to change over the next few years. I am aware, as you are, that there are going to be some big trials coming out in the next 12 months. So, for example, we will be waiting to hear about a further trial of tranexamic acid in trauma. And we've also completed in the UK and the US a study of fibrinogen replacement using cryoprecipitate in trauma. But these are examples of a number of other studies which we will be looking forward to seeing. So although I tend to have an, as a kind of background, three years is about the right time to start looking at updating a guideline, it may be something that we need to look at a bit earlier. So I would like to thank the writing group again who are involved with this guideline. I'd like to thank patients and for you as the listener, I would encourage you as the listener, if there's any further feedback on this guideline, to please get back to us and let us know. Thanks also to the BSH for organising this podcast. And please do, as listeners, feel free to look at some of the other podcasts on the website.